I'm preaching on the subject of the Pharisee in me, and I won't read the entire uh, story of the prodigal son. We've done that recently when I preached from it, but for the sake of time, we'll read just the epilogue, and of course, I'll refer to the main story several times. This is the greatest parable ever told, greatest parable ever told. Very soon, Lord willing, I will be preaching on a series of messages on the greatest sermon ever preached. I'll let you start guessing which one that is, and uh, we'll have some handouts for that as we did the most recent series. But the greatest parable ever told, this is the epilogue to the story of the prodigal son. He has come back safe and sound and restored and forgiven, and now the party is beginning the reception. In verse 25, we pick up the story. Now his elder son, or the brother to the prodigal, was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, the elder brother, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him, and he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son, notice he didn't say my brother, thy son, was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, Thou art ever with me, the Father speaking, and all that I have is thine. It was meet, it was right, it was fitting that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. This is the epilogue to the story of the classic parable of the prodigal son. Again, I believe the greatest parable Jesus ever told, and he told many. On the surface, it kind of looks like an anticlimax. I remember memorizing this as a, probably a teenager, or maybe even younger, and I stopped with verse 24. I, I, didn't, I didn't memorize this part, and a lot of preachers don't preach on this part. It's so anticlimactic. Why not just end the story with a gala party thrown by the father in celebration of the son's repentance and return and restoration and let everybody live happily ever after. Why did Jesus want to be a spoil sport here? I don't think he's trying to be a spoil sport. I think Jesus wants true joy to reign in our hearts. And he knows that can't happen until and unless we deal with the sinful tendency that's there, even as His obedient children, to be perplexed over His mysterious dealings at times with other sinners. Now, please listen, because you know what most of us do when we hear this epilogue preached on or read? We just go, we think it's for the person behind us that's trying to work their way to heaven. No, it's for you and you and you and you and you and me. We need this sermon. 
We need this passage of Scripture applied by the Holy Spirit. The elder brother here does not represent the self-righteous sinner that has no hope of heaven. Notice what the father said. Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. That doesn't represent God talking to an unsaved son or an unsaved person that's not a son. He represents the man who's remained God's servant all of his life. And when the son said, all these years have I served thee, the father didn't contradict him. So many Christians miss this to our own utter loss. Please, let's take honest inventory this morning. And and I know when I even announce the topic, you might think, well, this is one of those scorchers pastors going to bring. This is one of those convicting messages. Well, I I do hope it convicts us where God wants us to be convicted. But listen, it's an uplifting message if we get to know the heart of the Father. It'll be the most uplifting thing we could consider today. Please don't dodge the message and let it hit the person behind you. Jesus wanted his disciples to hear, not just the Pharisees and the scribes. Without a doubt, the prodigal had lived an awful life. We mentioned in the series on the parables of Jesus that the word prodigal itself does not mean profligate. I think a lot of people have that in their mind. In fact, the word prodigal has not even been, been applied to profligate people until the story of the prodigal son in the, in the King James Version caused people to attach that meaning to the word prodigal. The word prodigal itself means lavish. But because the, the younger son was lavish in the way he wasted his substance, we've come to connote prodigal with something bad. I'm glad we have a prodigal father who's very lavish with us. And so this story exposes the elder brother, and it's not to minimize sin. Quite the contrary, it magnifies God's grace. Because let me remind you, as we read in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it is the goodness of God that leadeth us to repentance. It is the assurance of God's full and free forgiveness that enables us to go, as Jesus commanded that woman we read about, to go and sin no more. Please don't miss that. Why did the elder brother get angry when all heaven and his father was rejoicing? Were rejoicing. Why did he complain to his dad instead of thank him, which he should have done? Well, the answer to those questions strikes at the heart of the pride that we have and the natural disdain we have for others. You probably don't think you do. If we would be Christ-like, we must deal with the same heart problems as this older brother. So my prayer today has already been, and I'll continue to pray it as I preach, and I hope you'll pray for me, that we will receive with meekness the implanted word. Why was the older brother angry? Three reasons. Number one, I've already hinted at this one. 
He didn't understand the father's heart. His heart didn't beat in sync with his dad's. Verse 20 tells how his father had reacted when his estranged son, profligate son, finally appeared in the distance. No doubt he'd been looking every day for him to pierce the distance, and he knew that he needed to run and reach him at the outskirts of the city, or the villagers would probably have pilloried him. That was the culture. And in verse 20, and he arose and came to his father, the prodigal. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him, literally smothered him with kisses. It's clear that the heart of the elder brother did not beat in sync with his dad's. He didn't share the same sympathy. If he did, if he had, he would have been running with his dad out there to meet his brother. And probably like John running with Peter, since he was younger, he would have outrun his dad and got there first to welcome this sin-ravaged, long-lost brother. But evidently, this older brother thought, well, he's getting what he deserved for insulting our father. And he was, but he didn't get the father's heart about that. And as much, inasmuch as this father pictures God the Father, I want to remind you, the Bible says in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, as I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, I, I know we've heard that verse, and, and I've preached from it in another context, but let me remind you, that takes in all the prodigals and all the despots and all the psychopaths and all the Hitlers and Mussolinis and Stalins and Osama bin Ladens and butchers, the Ted Bundys and Jeffrey Demlers of history. Yes, God is angry with the wicked every day, but that's you and me too until we come to Christ. He's angry with the wicked every day, and, and we're going to reap what we sow, and the way of the transgressors is hard. But may I remind you, he is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. Not one. But that all should come to repentance. And sometimes, let's be honest, and I've been guilty of this, we see hardened criminals on the evening news, or however you get your news, on, by internet, and they're receiving a, a prison sentence or the death penalty, and we find ourselves saying, let them rot in hell. They've callously taken the lives of others. Let them be on the receiving end and taste what it feels like. Serves them right. We've missed God's heart. Wouldn't Christ be glorified most if these hardened sinners were transformed into trophies of God's grace, and many of them have been. Do you think God delights to take the murderous Sauls and the adulterous Davids and the covetous Zacchaeuses and the idolatrous Abrahams and make them trophies of His grace? Oh, I think He does. Is that what we desire most? I'm serious. Do we have a heart like the Son of God's who, 
as he hung from the cross and saw the murderers, the Jews and the Gentiles, the soldiers and the civilians, the upper echelon and the rabble, as he saw those who had crucified him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they did. Stephen, the early martyr, so much like his master, entreated the Lord for his tormentors as the stones descended upon him, crushing out his life. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Oh, what a different tone that is. As believers, we must come to grips with this vital truth, folks, that sinners, even notorious ones, are not our enemies. They're the mission field. I'll be real practical here because not everybody's willing to say this. I know what's going on in Israel right now. But in our love for the Jewish people, let's take care, let's make, be very careful that we do not hate the Arab people. There are more believers among the Arabs than there are among the Jews. In all of our affinity for political and social conservatives, and I consider myself to be one, let's make sure that we don't hate the liberals and the radicals and the feminists and the New Agers and the LGBTQ plus crowd. And on and on we could go. We are all sinners. And if we scorn those people and their souls, we would have scorned the prodigal too. We'd have been just like the elder brother. But for the mercy and grace of God, there go we. The elder brother just missed the fact that God is long-suffering to all. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. But he also missed the fact that the Father's joy was the sublime joy of heaven. Did you notice that? The recurring refrain of this chapter is really found in the earlier verses, which talk about the, the two parables that preceded the parable of the lost son. There was a parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin. And in verse 7, Jesus said, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Verse 10 is a refrain. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. This is the joy of the Father. By the way, this touches on the heart of why this father, the father of the prodigal, did not go out into the far country after his son. He probably wasn't more than 100 or 200 miles away, maybe not even that far. He could have sent a people out there. He had enough money to do it. But listen very carefully. He wasn't content to just have that boy home with his feet under the table, but his heart hundreds of miles away. No, he wanted his Boy, whole, repentant, restored, rejoicing in the love of his Father. And some of us aim too short. I've heard parents say, oh, if I could just have my estranged son or daughter back home for Christmas. Yeah, that'd be wonderful, but if they don't come home to God, it's not going to do any good. What a contrast was the Father's joy to that of the 
elder brother. Did you, did you notice the backhanded slander that the elder brother dealt his father when he complained in verse 29? In verse 29, and he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid, a kid of the goats, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. Question, what was his purpose for having a merry atmosphere at the house? It was nothing more than just having a party with his friends. To some people, life is just one big party. They live for the weekends. You don't want to hear what they have to say on Monday morning at work about their escapades. They try to block out the hangovers. Could I ask you something? Could we begin to rejoice over what God rejoices about? Because if we can't, we're going to be perfectly miserable in heaven. Is there anything that makes you happier than when a sinner truly repents? And I praise the Lord for the joy that I've seen here in recent days when a man that I'm discipling every week came forward and made known his profession of faith. And there were tears of joy and shouts of joy. Please, I, I praise the Lord for that. But listen, that ought to be true every day of our life. Every day of our life. If, if we can't rejoice in that more than anything else, then God is not finished working on us. There's much land to be possessed before we are conformed to the image of His Son because His Son was the one who could testify of Himself. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Yes, the younger son, the prodigal, broke his father's heart, but listen, the older son was out of sympathy with his father's heart. And therefore, he was unable to set a true value upon the soul of his brother. And that's why he was perfectly miserable. I mean, his joy meter was all out of calibration. And I bet I'm talking to some today, your joy meter's out of calibration. I marvel at professing believers who get more excited about vacations and ball games and food and theme parks and the latest movie releases than they do about a soul, the report of a soul getting saved. Where's our values? Where's the mind of Christ? Did not He that save us teach us to seek above everything else the salvation and the restoration of others? Folks, that's all that matters. This big boy didn't understand his father's heart. Secondly, the elder son didn't understand his brother's repentance. The younger brother's repentance was obvious. If you read verses 17 through 19, down there in the hog pen where an old Jewish boy had any business being, he came to himself. That's the work of God. No sinner comes to himself of himself. He came to himself and he said, how many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare? And here I am perishing with hunger. I'm going to arise and go to my father. I'm going to cast myself on the mercy of my father. I'm not going to expect any preferential treatment. Just, ask, just treat me like one of the hired servants. He took the low place. Let's examine our hearts 
Do we really believe people can change like that? Do we really believe that the Holy Spirit convicts and regenerates like that? Oh, it's not always overnight. Let's not live in the past. Let's not remind people of their sins, their failures. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 16 says, Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Though we've known Jesus Christ at confession, yet we know Him no more. And the very next verse says, Wherefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Well then, should we insist with John the Baptist, bring forth fruits, meat for repentance, give evidence of repentance? Yes, but let's make sure we're disposed to forgive and believe that God can change and not remind people of their old faults and failures. Parents, when your child makes a profession of faith and they slip into an old pattern of responding or speaking, Please don't say to them, and you call yourself a Christian? Please don't do that. Let's examine our hearts. I'm serious as a heart attack today. Are we secretly glad that someone is degraded and shamed and disgraced by sin because it makes us look good by comparison? Well, I may have my faults, but bless God, that's not one of them. God help us. God help us. Is our eye evil because God's eye is good? Remember where that came from? Jesus asked that question in Matthew 20, verse 15, about some workers who had agreed to work all day for one denarius, while some hired at the eleventh hour only worked for one hour, received the same wages. Are we going to impose our own idea of fairness on a sovereign God? Oh, we get in trouble when we do that. You see, sin should have broken this boy's heart, but it didn't. Oh, it broke Jeremiah's heart. He was the weeping prophet. He wept day and night for the slain of his people who were reaping in faraway Babylon what they'd sown in Jerusalem. It broke Jesus' heart. As you come, if, if you've been to Israel today and you've come up over the brow of the Mount of Olives like Jesus did right before the triumphal entry, you'll see a church, a beautiful design. It's a Catholic church. The Church of the Teardrop. Why is it called that? Because Jesus came up over that brow of the Mount of Olives and he wept and he's, as he beheld the city saying through his choking sobs, if thou hadst known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thy eyes. Luke nineteen forty one through 44. Why did Jesus weep? Listen carefully. He wept at what was about to happen a few decades later unto the Romans. He knew what they were going to do, and the pillage, and the atrocities, and the death, and the bloodshed. But that's not the only reason he wept. He wept over what could have been. He said, you didn't know the time of your visitation. If you knew who it was that was about to present himself to you as the king, if you welcomed him as the Savior, and the Messiah came to save and not just rule. Oh, how different it would have been. Now, Luke doesn't tell us, but it's doubtful that this older brother ever wept over his junior sibling. 
Oh, he was righteously indignant, and a lot of us can get that way too. And we excuse ourselves. I'm just righteously indignant, you know. I'm just offended for the sake of so-and-so. I, they, they've shamed our father. But he could not enter into the travail of soul that his father had. My dear brothers and sisters, if we can't get broken over the sins of others, how do we expect them to shed tears of repentance? Did not he who saved our souls teach us to weep over the unsaved? I don't know about you, but I find myself just bowing my head but lifting my eyes and heart to God and saying, Oh God, give me your mind, give me your tears. How can I see people dying and my sleep not be disturbed? How can I see the flashing and hear the siren of the ambulance and I'm more concerned about being delayed because I have to pull over or I have to take a detour that I'm concerned about the victim being unprepared for eternity involved in that crash? Where's my heart? Secondly, love should have made him desire a transformation, not public shaming. I've somewhat spoken to that already. This was the difference between Christ and the Pharisees who brought the woman taken in the act of adultery that we read about at the beginning of the service there in John chapter 8. You don't have to read a whole lot between the lines to conclude that uh, these guys were the peeping Toms laying wait to catch this woman. Drag her to Jesus, fling her down at his feet, condemning her, leaving no allowance for even the possibility that she might be sorry and repent and be restored. They weren't interested in that. They wanted her stone, not saved. They wanted her sins exposed, not expunged. They wanted her terminated, not transformed. Jesus will teach us something different from that. We speak about the nobility of Joseph, the legal father of Jesus. You know what made him so noble? He truly loved Mary. And when he found out she was pregnant, the Bible says there in Matthew 1, he did not want to make her a public example. No, he was a just man. The word just means he was upright. Joseph had a great testimony in the community. But he knew that she was going to start showing soon. And he had to do something. So he settled on putting her away, divorcing her privily as the law allowed during the betrothal phase. Matthew understood the Jewish culture and was writing to the Jewish mind. Got to understand that Though stoning may have been commanded in the Old Testament for adultery, it had not been practiced. The practice had been discontinued for centuries. Do we in our heart of hearts truly desire the transformation of out-and-out sinners? Or would we rather see them shamed and eliminated? Do we really love them? You know, it's impossible to know what God is doing in the hearts of even the most notorious sinners of our day. In recent messages, I've named some of them. I won't do that today. 
It's difficult for us to understand what even a loving witness might have on such people. I've shown the film clip of Penn Jillette, the famous magician, along with another man in the team. And he, he had this video, it's been out for years, and he talks about a, a Gideon, a members of Gideon International, who walked up to him after a magic show and, and gave him a New Testament. And he's talking about that on film, and he says, he's weeping. And he says this, how much do you have to hate somebody if you really think they're on their way to hell not to tell them that? Oh, how God specializes in making trophies of grace out of unclean vessels. Let's believe Him for that. Maybe we'd see more of that happen if we believe God for it. If we were ready to receive that. Thirdly and lastly, not only did this prodigal older brother refused to rejoice because he, couldn't, he didn't understand the father's heart and he didn't understand his brother's repentance but he thirdly he didn't understand his own depravity look at verse 29 if you will please this is the elder brother speaking and he answering said to his father Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. What does that sound like? You know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like the rich young ruler when Jesus ran off the second table of the Decalogue about our relationship with our fellow man, his instinctive and no doubt glib and hasty response was, all these things that I kept from my youth up, what next? He was blind to his own greed. Because one of those commandments was, thou shalt not covet. And this man was covetous. He did not love his neighbor as himself, or he would have been willing to part with his possessions. He went away sorrowful, as the story goes on to say. His pockets were bulging, but his soul was bankrupt. And oh, how our pride blinds us. We cannot see our own sin, and that blinds us so that we can't see Christ, and we can't see the fruits of grace in others. Notice how he compared himself with others instead of with God. We always get in trouble when we do that. Jot this reference down, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, the latter part of that verse. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12 says that those who measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves among themselves are, are not wise. Oh, how we're prone to do that. Even when we think we are praying, but the first thing out of our mouth is what came out of the mouth of that Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 when he said, God, I thank Thee that I am not as other men are. You might as well just cut it off right then. God's not going to hear anything else you have to say. That's the Pharisee genes in you coming through. We need to pray like the prodigal prayed. A few verses later, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
That's the real meaning in the Greek. I think of Job. I've been reading Job lately. I just got into those last three chapters, and I'm like a cow in clover. Some of the earlier chapters are tough. I thought I understood Job. I didn't. If you have, please come see me. But I do understand this much. Job protested his innocence when his three friends, if you can call them friends, charged him falsely. He held fast to his integrity, but in chapter 38, when God breaks the silence and stops the stupidity and the ignorance that had been spoken for hours and days, when God finally spoke, what a difference response. What's Job's reaction? He says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of mine ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. This same man who had held fast to his integrity just a few days before. I can't help but think of the saintly David Brainerd. You're probably tired of hearing me drop his name. You probably think I knew him personally. No, I didn't. I wish I had. But what a great godly man he was. The only, he didn't even live to see his 30th birthday. Was never married, was engaged for just a few months to the daughter of Jonathan Edwards. And probably Jonathan Edwards, in whose home he died, knew him better than anybody. He's the one who compiled and published his diary and journal. And Jonathan Edwards considered this missionary to be, and I quote, one of the godliest men I ever knew. I, I think that's a pretty unbiased assessment. But David Brainerd, the godly man that he was, the missionary to the American Indians in the 1740s, who experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, knew what it was to see the Spirit of God move on the scene and cause Indians who didn't even know they had a soul to be wonderfully converted. Hear him speak. Hear him write in his journal. How can any of us protest our goodness when were it not for the gracious restraint of God, at any moment we would all break out into incarnate devils. End of quote. Maybe you think that's an exaggeration. Maybe you think that was just done for effect, but it wasn't because he didn't expect, he didn't write his journal to be read by anybody. I ask you, are you acquainted with your own heart? If we are, we won't find fault with people who find fault with us. You know what we'll do when somebody finds fault with us? The reaction, and you've heard me say this before, but I mean it. The reaction of our hearts will be, thank God they don't know me as well as I know myself. Oh, what a tale they'd get out. <laughs> what a scandal sheet would be written. The elder brother didn't know the depravity of his own heart. And I remind you, neither do you. Neither do I. The heart is deceitful above all things, above everything. Desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 55, to James and John, the sons of thunder. And boy, they came through like Boanerges here. They just met some... Samaritans and James and John said, Master, you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's what Elijah did. They felt they had good grounds for that. They weren't ready for Jesus' answer because he put them in their place. He said, you know not what manner of spirit ye are of. 
If you really knew, if I really knew what was in my heart, we'd be so shocked we wouldn't find fault with anybody accusing us at all. Finally, he was content, this older brother, with mere outward righteousness, and he neglected holiness of heart. You know, the Puritans and others in the past used to talk about vital godliness. You don't hear that expression anymore. How easy it is to just focus on the outward. That's why Jesus had the beef he had with the Pharisees. He didn't mince words in Luke chapter 11, verses 39 and 40. He said, now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that made that which, was with, which is within, uh, without outside, make that which is within the inside also? That was the problem of the Pharisees. Their righteousness was purely external. They weren't concerned about what God knew them to be in the heart. According to Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, the Pharisees were people of the book. They were devoted to the memorization and study of the law. They were literalists. They were separated from the heathen world around them. In fact, the root word in the Hebrew for the Greek word Pharisee is parash, which means to separate. They were patriotic. They had a deep love and commitment to the nation Israel. They were willing to fight to defend her. They were the traditionalists. You would not have seen them if they were alive today. They wouldn't be seen at a Christian rock concert or any seeker-friendly worship service. They were orthodox. They were conservative. They were fundamental. They believed in the resurrection and angels and miracles. They weren't like those liberal Sadducees. But isn't it interesting, still they rejected Christ. May I remind you, we can be all of these things that I mentioned. We can be separated. We can be orthodox. We can be fundamental and moral and straight and conservative and pro-family and heterosexual and cisgender and separated. And we can not smoke and not chew and not run with the girls that do. And yet we can have a heart a million miles away from God's heart for sinners. God is concerned about the inside. It doesn't mean that he's indifferent about the outside. That's the extreme that some fundamentalists have gone to in an overreaction in our day. If the inside is right, it's going to show up on the outside. Please don't get caught up with a popular notion that anybody who has a stricter standard than you do is a legalist and judgmental. I've had so much of that, I'm about to puke. Satan has wreaked so much havoc and sown a lot of worldliness because of that. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And God has linked the inside with the outside. Way back in the Old Testament, he did that in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. The question is asked, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? Who is the one that God countenances and recognizes and has a regard to? Here's the answer. Don't miss it. In Psalm 24, verse 4, he that hath clean hands, that's the outward thing, and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully. 
May I remind you, it's only by God's grace that you differ from the drunkard that's wallowing in the mire or the dope addict that's at the crack house. Were it not for God's restraining grace, every one of us would break out into incarnate devils. If that offends you, you don't know your own heart yet. So I close by reminding you, this elder brother was not a self-righteous hypocrite. We can't dismiss that, this story that easily. It's for us who have been faithfully serving our Father for years. We are still sinners with a nature that gravitates towards self. That's the grand idol in our hearts. And if we're not careful, we can miss the Father's heart, and we can misunderstand our brother's repentance, and we can be blind to our own depravity. How tragic, how sad it would be to hear our Heavenly Father say one day, in words reminiscent of what the Father said to the elder brother, the elder son, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. Look around in heaven, but you never caught my spirit. You never felt my heart throb. Oh, I pray that won't be said of us. It behooves each of us to honestly examine our hearts today and ask God, Oh, say, can you see any Pharisee in me? Shall we pray? Oh, God, for some reason, when you draw us to yourself, you just don't eradicate that sin nature in us. I've wished you had so many times. But we carry it with us wherever we go. It plagues us even on Sunday. Satan doesn't respect Sunday. That fleshly nature that focuses on self, it dogs our footsteps. It defiles our best practices. It causes us to be, feel like we're entitled Please forgive us. Oh God, give us a heart like thine that sees ourselves the way you do and welcomes and changes and restores the vilest sinners to yourself. And where the Holy Spirit has shed his light on some ugly spots in our hearts, give us grace to just drag them out into the open and confess and forsake. That the joy of heaven, the joy of the Father, might reign in our hearts. For Jesus' sake and glory, amen.